We are seeking submissions for Volume 4 of our Grassroots Anthology series. If you are a First Nations writer, poet, artist, photographer, please send us your work for consideration. You can email grassroots at mfnerc.com before February 12th. Radio, the podcast of the Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Centre. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Thunder Radio. I'm your host, Kim Kakigamic, and this is our November show. The idea of being a First Nations ally is something that I've been hearing and reading about recently, and Monique Woroniak is someone who came to mind when I thought about focusing a podcast on the topic. Monique is a non-Indigenous person who is very active in Winnipeg with trying to raise awareness and share knowledge with non-Indigenous people specifically about First Nations history and issues. She helped to create the website Groundwork for Change that covers all kinds of things like what does Indigenous sovereignty mean, what is cultural appropriation, what is racism, is there anything I can do about these things? It was such a treat to have her in the studio, and I hope you enjoy our conversation about what it means to be an ally, or as she describes it, a learner of truth. Um, I'm here with Monique Woroniak. That's right. So we'll start with, um, if you could tell us a bit about yourself, um, such as where you grew up and where you went to school, and maybe how um, that led you to become interested in First Nations issues, if it did. Sure. Your your background years. Um, so I was born in Winnipeg onto Treaty 1 territory and uh, the traditional lands of the Red River Métis um, back in 1978. And uh, I've lived here pretty much all my life. Um, my family spent a couple of years in Germany when I was in preschool years. Um, and uh, I went away uh, for one of my degrees uh, to Halifax for a couple of years, uh, but came back in 2007. Um, I guess... Uh, like many non-Indigenous people that uh, grew up in Winnipeg and and of course elsewhere in Canada, um, I had uh, what I will be, I'll charitably call it a a, a weak education in terms of uh, Indigenous issues, uh, current issues, histories, the whole thing. Um, And I didn't really have much of an awareness um, until I would say when I was about 11 or so. Um, can't do the math with the years, but uh, I have a, a story that's out there and uh, it's been shared in, in different forms um, about how I saw Elijah Harper on television um, around the uh, his killing of the Meech Lake Accord. And uh, I was a kid that liked to stay up late and watch the news with my parents and watch the national with Peter Mansbridge and all those guys and uh, I remember seeing Mr. Harper on the television and I was very confused um, because he was wearing a a suit jacket I can't remember if he was wearing a tie probably was Um, but he was wearing a suit jacket but he looked like a and I'm making the air quotes here he looked like an Indian to me but he was wearing a suit jacket so I was I was just totally 
totally confused um, because, of course, up until that point, I think like uh, most other elementary school children of that time in the 80s, I was, I had not been given any information um, that Indigenous people were still alive. And in the neighborhood that I grew up in, in, in Fort Richmond in Winnipeg, you just, uh, you didn't see any. It turned out we had one Indigenous family living in our neighborhood, but I hadn't encountered them yet. And so when I saw Mr. Harper, I, I was genuinely confused. And I remember having to ask my dad, I'm like saying, who is that? And he said, that's Elijah Harper. And uh, he explained a bit of what was going on. I was a precocious kid and uh, kept tried to even at that time learn a bit about politics in the country. So he was explaining about the Constitution and how hard it is to change it and all the provinces have to agree and all this. And... Um, and I said, well, he looks like an Indian. And my, remember my dad correcting me and saying, we say native peoples now at the time. <laughs> and um, I said, but he's wearing a suit, right? And he said, yeah, that's because that's his job in the legislature. And I, I just remember sitting there going, oh, and I didn't ask anymore. Um, I was also a kid. I thought, uh, like many children, uh, you know, if they're fortunate enough, I looked up to my father a lot and I thought he was brilliant and I didn't uh, want to look stupid in front of him. So I didn't ask any more questions. I thought I'll just, I'll look into this on my own at some point. <laughs> um, and so that sort of stayed there. And then um, probably my next real kind of encounter with any kind of Indigenous story or reality was in grade 10 or so at Fort Richmond Collegiate, we read April Raintree, as so many um, young people uh, on the prairies do. And uh, I loved that story. It was just great storytelling of Beatrice's. And uh, I also loved that it named places that I knew. Um, my father grew up in the North End, and my grandmother at the time still lived there. So I, I knew where the Louise Bridge was and, and all many of the other places in, in the book. Um, and but I didn't know the history of children being removed from their families and everything mm -hmm. that the book goes into. So that was sort of another thing going, okay, this is like another piece that's been missing. And then by the time I went to university, I did a political science degree and a bunch of women's studies courses, but most of my electives were filled up with Native studies. And uh, it was just me, I think, trying to figure out, yeah, like, the missing piece of the puzzle. I was always really interested in Canada, Canadian history, uh, Canadian politics. Uh, I knew those were the things I was going to study. Um, but uh, I wanted the whole picture, and it became clear to me um, very quickly uh, after I graduated from high school that I was missing huge pieces of the picture. And um, I'm just a I guess inherently or genuinely curious person and I also don't like not knowing things or not being told and I think that's common to a lot of people but um and I just remember thinking well I'm not going to understand anything about this country unless I know this piece so um that's sort of what started my kind of more formal and more active education around trying to trying to learn things yeah yeah okay um so I had, I first came across you on Twitter, of course, okay. <laughs> and sort of um, was have been kind of following your your social media, and so I kind of know you as being an ally of First Nations or Indigenous peoples, um, and so I was wondering, in your own words, if you could explain 
what that means. Like if if you would call yourself an ally and what that is. Um, I I don't uh, use that word myself. Okay. Um, I'm. It's whenever uh, somebody. Uh, from various indigenous communities may use it with respect to me. It's not something that happens all the time or something. Um, but if they do, it's very, uh, it, I consider that an honor and I say thank you. So I say thank you to you. Um, but I, uh, I'm, I'm wary of it. I mean, language is a really hard thing, right? Because we need to use words to communicate in some way and call things something. Um, but uh, I think, first of all, I mean, no one uh, self-declares themselves an ally, obviously, although you do hear it around there sometimes. Right? Um, I think the other thing is, is that it's a word that's becoming more and more common now. And it's almost uh, like an identity that people take on or put on, mm-hmm. I, I find sometimes. And, but that it stops at the, the naming of it or the naming of themselves as that or other people calling them that. And there may or may not be action being undertaken by people who are so-called allies, right? Um, and I think that the best thing I ever heard about that word is that al- somebody said ally. That word should really be a verb, not a noun, right? Mm, yeah, and it be action. Yeah, it's like because it's got to be action. And I think to the extent that maybe it's uh, taken on a bit of a kind of an identity politics sort of slant to it, uh, where maybe people um, use it, uh, I'm not saying people in the Indigenous community, but people in the non-Indigenous community maybe use it a little too lightly sometimes, um, and maybe don't think about, well, what would that really mean, you know? Um, and there's all kinds of other words that are sort of bubbling up in terms of, you know, what what might be a, a more appropriate thing, but it's certainly the word that we one of the main words that we have, so I acknowledge that it gets used. I think that um, for myself, I there's no short one word, um, but the phrase that I think of is usually, I just consider myself to be someone who's trying to learn truth, and that's it, you know? Uh, so I don't know, learner of truth, it doesn't roll off the tongue as easily, <laughs> right? But I think that's that really sums it up for me. I mean, there's... Uh, so much truth that's being unearthed and uncovered and shared right now in this moment, especially uh, in the country. And uh, I, I think it's a responsibility of non-Indigenous people to be listening to that truth and learning from it. Um, and it's just, it's a constant learning process. I mean, there's not, I, I think it'll go on until I'm no longer here on this earth. I, I can't imagine, you, you could never know all there is to know, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, so I just, and I, I like that because it feels active. You know, you're learning, you're constantly doing things. Um, but then also hopefully I'm someone that tries as much as possible uh, within my own personal capacities to, to act on whatever new truths I learn in ways that are appropriate and um, that take direction from individual community members or larger communities. Mm, okay. So... I guess then how uh, can someone who is non-Indigenous um, become, I, I'll use the term learner of truth then, sure. <laughs> instead of ally. <laughs> yeah. uh, I guess, so maybe just more specifics about what you were just saying. If, if someone wanted to learn more, what, what should they do? What should they do? Oh, that's a great question. Um, 
I mean, and like the answer to any question, it depends on the person, you know, yeah, <laughs> right? of, course. of course, that's of the course. easy, the easy way out of that question. <laughs> no. Um, but I think, um, you know, because say like uh, the non, when we say non-Indigenous people, well, that's a huge range of people, right? That's people like myself, uh, who are of European background, um, who came from, uh, you know, uh, very sort of uh, financially stable working class family like my parents weren't owners of businesses or high-level managers or anything but one was a teacher one worked for Canada Post we weren't worried about money um, and uh, I have a, a decent amount of education one of my parents had quite a bit of education and um, so there's there's my experience of being a non-indigenous person uh, there are non-indigenous people both white and uh, otherwise who have grown up in in relatively high amounts of poverty in in this country, um, and then there's non-indigenous people who uh, are just very recent newcomers. And I say recent newcomers because I, you know, I'm descended from immigrants. I'm I'm new on this land in in uh, in, in many ways, certainly relative to the indigenous population. But now, and of course, in the news, we're talking about recent newcomers, right? Yeah. Um, and all of our experiences are are very much different right so I I face maybe certain amounts of oppression because I'm a woman so inherently you you come across sexism and things I face a little bit of class some class oppression right because uh, I don't own a big corporation and not running things or something um, but uh, I don't face uh, but I don't face nearly as much as, as other members of the non-Indigenous community do, and I have a lot more opportunities. So I say all that because uh, I think it's something to keep in mind. I, I think anybody, no matter where they are on the socioeconomic spectrum or what other um, challenges they may be um, experiencing in their life related to various types of oppression, whether it's sexism or um, you know, uh, ableism or whatever it is, can do something. But I acknowledge that I've been able to do, and it's easier for me to do more than it is for, for many non-Indigenous people. Having said that, um, I think, uh, and again, depending on people's skills and abilities, you know, for people that have access to the internet um, uh, and have, you know, the ability to read, right? Uh, you got to have those two things in order to, to learn a lot of this stuff. Um, there's a lot of pretty good resources out there. you got to kind of weave your way through some not great stuff. But there's people out there that can point the way. And um, we've tried to do that with this Groundwork for Change website, which maybe we'll talk about after. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that. And there's also, I think, especially here in Winnipeg, you know, doing doing your best to keep an eye out and an ear out for where where indigenous people are gathering and what they're doing to speak out in public ways um whether it's at a book launch there's just so many now it's like it feels like it's one after another it's wonderful um or if it's at a demonstration at portage in maine or if it's uh you know listening to 
to music uh, and a speaker and, and drumming at, at Thunderbird House. Or um, There's ways of finding out about these things. It's, it's easier now, I think, than it was. Um, but you still have to, you have to be listening and watching, right? Um, and I think, you know, there's no substitute for meeting people in person. Um, a lot of people find their way into, non-Indigenous folks, I think, find their way into awareness through whether it's books or reading things online or whatever it is. And I think that's great. I think it's necessary. Um, but it's no substitute for, for being with people in the same space, right? And, um, you know, listening to people's actual stories and and just spending time with people. It's not necessarily like, okay, well, I'm in this space and what are what are people going to tell me about themselves? I mean, it's not, I mean, <laughs> there may be situations where that happens just for the nature of the event. But, but just being with, and meeting a whole range of Indigenous people, right? Because as uh, as varied as the non-Indigenous community is, that's as that's how varied the Indigenous community is, right? You have people who are who are struggling and facing just um, unfathomable amounts of oppression, uh, say uh, living on the street and facing high levels of violence, all the way to people like Justice Sinclair, right? Mm-hmm. and beyond and business people and lawyers and teachers and people that work at McDonald's and people that are students and right you know their experiences of what it means to be indigenous um, I would imagine are quite varied right <laughs> and their lives look different from each other and I think it's important to to meet and spend time with this as many people from the community as possible because it does remind you of um I think people's individual humanities, but also um, it really works. I, it's the best medicine I can think of for breaking down stereotype, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And we all know, I don't think we have to repeat them, but the general stereotype associated with, with the Indigenous folks. And um, But when you're meeting just such a range, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. um, that you take for granted with any other group in this country that that range exists. Um, but when you're meeting and seeing and speaking with that range of people from, from the community, um, there's nothing to replace that, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's so true. It, it reminds me of, you know, one of my own frustrations is that so often everyone gets lumped into just, and, and Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, everyone just gets lumped into one group. And so that's, I, I completely agree with you and just that yeah. you have to meet individuals and hear stories and, and learn, like yeah. you said, learn Exa- as much as you yeah, can. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's why I really like that idea of learner. I mean, it's just, um, because it's never ending and it's, a, it's about a curiosity, but respectful curiosity, you know, like yeah. uh, indigenous people's stories aren't yours to own or hear, or, you know, no one's obligated to tell you anything, you know, uh, right. But, um, but I like that idea of uh, having a curious heart and and then learning how to channel that in good ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you are working um, on Groundwork for Change, which is a website um, to raise awareness, to offer a place where people can learn. Um, so maybe I'll have you talk a little bit about about the website sure um so groundworkforchange.org uh, and it's just all spelled out um is something that i work on in conjunction with a small group of um white non-indigenous uh, settler women in 
in Winnipeg here and one lives in Gimli and I will say their names because they deserve to have their names said. So Liz Carlson, Ashlyn Haglin, Lisa Stepnick, and Lark Gamey. Um, and uh, it's something that uh, launched, I guess, at the end of June this year. Um, it's something that uh, I guess I did come up with and, and initiate and then uh, knew that uh, that work is it's never a responsible choice to do that kind of work in a vacuum um so put the call out uh to a sort of small uh community a group of uh settler white settler folks here in this they're generally most of them are white settler folks here in the city um who are active in in different ways supporting and, and thinking about these issues to see if anyone had some time to to give some feedback and um and help build it and, and maintain it. Um, what I, it came about, um, I think just after the idea for it or the real push, uh, was probably just after the McLean's article about Winnipeg came out last year. I was going to ask you about that <laughs> <Yes>. later. <laughs> right. yeah. And, um, the McLean's article came out and that was like all of this amazing truth, right? Coming right up to the surface in a very mainstream publication. I don't think there was anybody who's, um, familiar uh, with even slices of the true experience of many Indigenous peoples in the city that were surprised with what was in that article and I know that uh, there was a good cross-section of people from the community who agreed to participate in that article and uh, I, at least for the people I know it was sort of a collective kind of exhale or like huh finally kind of it's out in a really big way it's not like people hadn't been telling these stories but McLean's is is McLean's so um and uh after that happened I got a call out of the blue from uh uh a radio station here in the city and that hadn't happened to me before and um found my name I imagine on social media and uh and asked if I would uh do an interview about uh about being an ally I think that's what they said and this is an aside that a recording of that interview is still floating around online on some websites and I was introduced as a self-proclaimed ally and I almost died I almost just fell through the seat and it's not something I had said I think the interviewer misspoke or something or just (laughs) so if anyone finds it out there I'm really happy The, the rest of the interview was lovely she asked good questions and I think I represented okay but that introduction was like oh we gotta clip that off um but after that happened, that interview, and it was on a morning show, and um, I got uh, a relative flood of messages to my various social media accounts, and I would always get a bit of a trickle, um, depending on whether I'd set a post to public or not or something. And uh, But I, I got a lot of messages, and they were all from people I didn't know. I did, you know, you look up on Facebook, someone contacts you, who do we have in common? And some of them I didn't have anybody in common, which... Um, I considered remarkable for Winnipeg but yeah. the um and and just asking like oh I heard that and I'm like what can I do to help well I'm not somebody that can necessarily answer that but but it was a lot of questions about well, where can I find more about topic xyz so I would send people links I mean like here's the copy of treaty one or here's you know things I knew were reliable and I felt you know we're within my knowledge base to share and uh but it started getting to be a little too much so (laughs) hard to keep up with and um but I was really excited I thought well maybe this is the tipping point now and it was something that had been rolling around in my head since probably since the beginning of Aldo Memorial going I wish there was just 
there can't just be one place, but I wish there was a place where a lot of the information was pulled together. And uh, so after that happened, I was like, that's it doing it. So I wrote up a little proposal for it and what it might look like and I circulated it to about a dozen and a half members of the Indigenous community that I had some relationship with and um, some that I had uh, just sort of had only met once or twice but I thought I think they'd be interested in commenting on this kind of thing and uh, got uh, great engagement and feedback back and some direction and um, I said okay well I'm gonna go off and try to do this and I'll be in touch in a few months probably. (laughs) and brought those women in and uh, we really uh, uh, took the direction that we had heard in the feedback and I should say sorry I there was one person individually um, Tasha Spillett um, oh, I'm familiar with yes yeah with and I yeah. passed Tasha some tobacco and we actually uh, went out for supper and um, because uh, she works as an educator she's close to my age um, we have a number of things in common then of course uh, a huge number of ways where we're very different um but uh she's i mean there's many thoughtful people out there but tasha's just one that i happen to know a little bit better and um and she really gave some some good direction and grounding uh to go forward and so we took what she said and what other people said and uh kind of made up the goals of the site and the purpose and the audience and everything on the site under the about section if people look at it are really what myself and uh, those other women came up with. Um, And then we just said, well, what are the questions, categories that people are asking questions in? And we just listed them out and uh, I just started populating it and building it and filling it up. And it was um, the other thing that we thought we wanted to share information about, not just um, not just issue things like missing and murdered women, um, residential schools, etc. But also some sort of theory and concepts. So where can you find basic definitions of settler colonialism? Where can you find good definitions of different types of racism? Um, where can you find people talking about what it means to be a good ally or good supporter and from an indigenous or persons of color perspective, right? Um, so there's a combination of information on that site and, and a community calendar as well. And so that launched in uh, at the end of June and it's just had a wonderful response. Um, of course, it spikes at different times, yeah. and, right? but we've had, uh, I haven't checked in about a week or so, but the last time I did it was over 12,000 different people have been on that site since wow. June, which is amazing to me. Um, and so we're, uh, we're very committed to staying with it and, uh, and growing it and, uh, and trying to make it a, the go-to place, at least for Winnipeggers. Because um, there is a fair bit of Winnipeg-specific information on it, mm-hmm. um, and certainly uh, the calendar. Because we, we, uh, as I was saying before, you know, you can do as much reading as you want, <laughs> right? And it's great. And listening to videos, there's a lot of videos on there. Um, but you need to meet people, and so it's really geared for non-Indigenous folks who have very, very little contact within with the indigenous community or just starting kind of and so we thought it's important at least to have do our best to pull in as many events as we're hearing about around the city and get them in one place so people and a whole range of things so there really is you know book launches by academics book launches by poets um you know concerts the aboriginal film festival to when we hear about uh public um vigils for women where the community has said yes 
it's fine to share this to to demonstrations and roadblocks so you know whatever whatever we don't have a limit on what's shared on there as long as it's coming up from some segment of the indigenous community um, so that we feel that there's a real range of things for people to get engaged with whatever their comfort level is you know <laughs> right um, so yeah it's uh, it's been an, another interesting learning experience building it yeah well it's a great site I I think it's very very well done thank you very yeah, much great information on it um, so yeah getting back to the McLean's article that you mentioned when um, Winnipeg was called was it called Canada's most racist yeah I city? believe that's yeah I think that's the or, phrase they use actually yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you do you think that's a correct label I, I think that label sells papers. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I think uh, Winnipeg, like many other cities across the country, um, has an enormous amount of racism in it. I have, I don't know how you measure it. Yeah. I think McLean's had, um, and I've forgotten now because I, I haven't read it since it came out, but they had a couple metrics that they shared. I think it was like, you know, sur some surveys. Not that they had done, but that... Uh, I can't, maybe another think tank or somebody else had, had done. So they had tried to, you know, we're not just pulling it out of thin air. Um, but um, but I think, I mean, I certainly think that it's no mistake that a city that has such a high Indigenous population can be said to have such a high level of racism. I don't think that's, you know. And when we see, um, you know, the levels of violence against Indigenous women and girls, and the levels of um, children uh, being taken by CFS agencies. You know, we see such huge levels of that kind of um, acting out of racial oppression happening, um, you know, in cities like Winnipeg and Regina and Saskatoon, mm -hmm. right? Like, and it's no mistake, right? Um, so I think, who knows about the most, but certainly there's an enormous amount and I think it's both um, certainly at a at a structural level like when we talk about the racism that's built into systems you know that's uh, that they're just I don't know what a good metaphor is but you know it's a it's a train it's just it's going you know right you know it's built in it's it's what keeps that train moving um, sometimes it's because somebody at a desk is making a deliberately racist decision about to create to enact a policy other times it's because it's just the way the system is structured and has been for years and it's just keeping going and people are making choices not to stop it right um so there's that structural racism that certainly exists at high levels in the city but um and i i don't know because i'm not an <laughs> indigenous but i just know from from stories and from friends and colleagues um that it that there seems to be a, a fairly high level of individual racism going on. Just, you know, people calling people names or not getting service in a store or being followed in a store, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I think it's a it's a huge issue. I think it's a huge issue across the country. But um, and I and I care about what's going on across the country, certainly. But I think um, Winnipeggers, uh, non-Indigenous Winnipeggers who reacted negatively to that story should just said don't worry about what everybody else thinks you know like we have a problem here let's just worry about us who cares if we're more or less racist than Vancouver or whatever you know um but uh, it was interesting to see the 
the, the response by a lot of non-Indigenous Winnipeggers to how attached they were to some mythic reputation of Manitoba or Winnipeg. I, it was hard for me to relate to. I tried very hard. I wanted to understand that. Um, but uh, I never quite got there. Yeah. <laughs> so then I guess what um, what can the average Winnipegger do um, to help in terms of like if they think we do have a problem with racism in this city but I don't really know what to do about it because I'm just one person and yeah what would you suggest well this is an it's a question I think through a lot and I don't um I think what I have are very imperfect answers but um I think they need to people need to be conscious that there are those um you know probably isn't just two but those two types of racism right that sort of those interactions on an individual level um person to person or small group to small group and then there's that structural stuff right now for the individual stuff i think that's it's not easy necessarily but it's more straightforward you know if people are seeing people being mistreated in a store getting called a name on a street um you know uh all the examples that you can sort of think of, you know, uh, you know, people need to say something about that. Or if they're, you know, if a colleague makes a joke in the lunchroom or whatever, that's inappropriate. I don't care if there's no other, there's no indigenous person there to say it. Like there's responsibilities to say things like we know these things are not right and that they contribute to a really toxic culture, um, that helps support all the structural racism that's going on. And so, um, you know, there's non-Indigenous people have a responsibility to just say that, like, I don't, I find that language offensive, that language is offensive, and, you know, please don't use it, right? Um, and so I, I think there's those sort of individual actions, right? Um, when it comes to the structural stuff, it's, it's less straightforward, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think non-Indigenous people, to the extent that they have the opportunity and, and like I said before, you know, the, the level of privilege that non-Indigenous people experience, you know, there's a range. But to the extent that they can, I think it's important that we learn about these systems that are in place. You know, people should be aware that, it, at least it made it out onto the news that, you know, at least in, in given time periods, there's there's one Indigenous child being taken away every day in this, right? It's astonishing, right? Mm-hmm. You should know about that and and know about the the histories that went on you know, that have led to that. Um, the gift of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and their work and the survivors' bravery and their their efforts to get their stories out, there's really very little excuse for people not to know about that history and and the intergenerational impacts and how it's informed a lot of the, the things that are going on today. Um, even if folks can't read now, there's a huge number of videos online and, and other things. I mean, you still have to be able to access them and know where they are and, and, and get help with that. But it's becoming easier for a larger number of people. Um, so I think it's important to understand a lot about how, as much as you can about how the systems work and how the systems work against Indigenous people, whether it's the justice system, the education system, um, child welfare systems. And then to the extent that you can find out about what Indigenous people are doing to to resist those systems and and build their own systems, do what you can to support that. 
That's like a really general answer, but the, um, but I'm, you know, as people hear about things in the news or, um, Winnipeg is a small place, right? And it becomes smaller and smaller the more people you meet. Um, you know, if you hear about people putting together a demonstration or, you know, putting together a panel to educate about what the actual experience is of CFS, I mean, the appropriate thing to do is, if it's open to the public, is to go and listen. And the next thing, whenever you feel comfortable to, is is to ask people involved, is there something useful I can do? right and never to rush in and take over or say oh I'm sure I'm sure they'll need this I know what they need and you know yeah. it's just to ask the question you know uh, is there something useful how can I be of use here right and sometimes it's uh, you can't just come and listen tell more people what we're doing and other times it's can you bring this next time uh, and other times uh, it'll be other things right um, but indigenous people know what they need and they have the solutions for themselves. Um, and it's just a, a matter of asking if it's appropriate to be supporting them to push those solutions forward or if we should just be listening in a given moment. Um, but it's those two things. you got to call out that awful inter interpersonal stuff as you hear it. It's just, it's 2015. There's no excuse for that. Um, and uh, But that structural stuff, it's harder. We have an obligation to learn about the histories and then learn about the present day systems and then support indigenous people's solutions to them, right? It's tough. Yeah. Do you face uh, negative reactions to, to your, well, not necessarily to your work, but maybe to some of your work, um, to your point of view or, yeah. uh, you know? Um, very little. and. I, I try not to live in a bubble, but I probably do. And um, <laughs> um, my uh, my circles of friendship and networks and uh, both personal and professional um, t tend to be with people that are more open-minded. And um, it doesn't mean that everybody is um, engaged in, in the way that I've chosen to be. Um, but I, it, it certainly means that I'm, it's, it's very few and far between the negative comment. I mean, any negativity that I've gotten would be um, just on a, like an open platform, like Twitter, the odd yeah. person. Yeah. And I, I lump them into, um, with apologies to uh, any Winnipeg Sun or Winnipeg Free Press readers uh, who are of open minds and good hearts <laughs> but <laughs> I lump them in it's the same sort of things that you see from commenters on, on media sites right yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and that um, you don't know these people and it just their opinion doesn't matter very much um, I do get uh, I think what's more difficult to deal with uh, although it's not like horribly difficult um, is uh, people with say a good heart, a relatively open mind, uh, but you know, uh, I'm trying to think of an example, but might not quite, you know, get or are looking to understand why an indigenous uh, group is acting out in a certain way on an issue. You know, okay. I think um, it came around a little bit, maybe around uh, some of the round dances. So, yeah, this is a relatable example some of the round dances that happen in Portage and Maine you know I think um, in general though this is hard to say like people's reactions to those round dances were non like the non-indigenous um, 
broad community were, were relatively positive, although you did see a lot of backlash, so maybe I shouldn't even say that. But it, the idea, I mean, they were such a joyful, open, welcoming, inviting space, right? Um, and, uh, but, you know, there were the times when Portage and Maine got blocked on New Year's Eve, right in the afternoon, right? And yeah. you'd hear the comments from, rel- you know, what you would think are open-minded people saying, well, why, why do they have to inconvenience that inconvenience thing, right? Yeah. And yeah. these weren't even blockades, like for Pete's sake, no one's stopping yeah. a train or something. But the, um, uh, and it's sort of saying like, whoa, you know, and it, ta- it you get taken aback a little bit when you hear that from, from people that you might not expect it from. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, you just try to share information uh, kindly first right (laughs) and say you know we're talking about half an hour here you know these are people that were have been displaced from their lands for generations and you know winnipeggers can be uh displaced from their root home for half an hour right um but but and saying and this is why and and you were invited to this you know so listen for the next one because everyone was invited to these things, right? And to experience it. And maybe you'll change your mind once you experience it. Um, because I think it's very easy, again, like uh, for people to say, oh, I think I think Indigenous people are wonderful and, you know, I wish them well and, and all, you know, what's what's happening is terrible. And, you know, like it's relatively easy to say those things. But then as soon as somebody becomes, quote unquote, inconvenienced or whatever then you start to see oh okay well we have work to do with people's perspectives and what they know um and uh and i think there's a really important place for non-indigenous people to to play that have done some learning and can share some things um i you know uh doing all that correcting and that teaching and that that can't just be um, indigenous people's work they have their own work you know uh, that they need to be that they need to do that they want to do and to the extent that a non-indigenous person has been respectfully accumulating some truth around this and can figure out a way to uh, communicate it that that's I believe our responsibility too yeah I really appreciate your answer to that because I brought to mind someone I know who I you know is, is dear to me but who was like they're just blocking traffic and it's yeah. just you know <laughs> yeah well why are they doing that yeah, yeah it's just like you said it's just a half an hour inconvenience but some people would get so upset yeah yeah and so. I think that's that really um it uh to me and I like I mean everybody's different but I think you you can't after having learned some truth of the histories you can't have that response I, I don't know how it would be possible. I would love to somebody do a study on that, right? Teach all these people histories and then subject them to a, a blockade and see what they, you know. But like the, um, I, I just don't see how you can. And so to me that, um, my instinct, like I get very impatient with it sometimes and that's why I have to remember the kindness piece and think, okay, well, you're not ready to to teach this with kindness just yet. So maybe say I, let's talk about that tomorrow or another day or something. Um, but I think like the gift of those reactions, right? And this is like another, some of the teaching I've had from community members, like look for the gift that people are sharing something with you. What's the gift? So the gift underneath that statement is 
they're they're telling you they're admitting even though they're not admitting it on the surface that they don't know all the histories right and so it's like okay well that's a solvable thing yeah yeah. you know like that's that's actually a solvable thing um because here's the information and here's the you know like um it really just pinpoints it out because I, I think it's true. I think you can't have reactions like that and ones that are similar to it. Um, if you have, if you know even a slice of the histories, I can't imagine somebody saying that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that's sort of the gift of those statements. It's like, okay, well, somebody gave me a clear path to what the solution to this little piece of this is, you know. Um, but it's hard to hear. It's frustrating sometimes. Mm, yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, let's maybe talk a little bit about um, reconciliation uh, because sure. that's been in the news, the the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, I guess if, if you can uh, generalize an answer, it's probably a loaded question, but what do you think is needed for true reconciliation? And this is something I've only... Um spent more dedicated time thinking about like over the past several months um i think probably inherent in the learning that i've been doing over the past number of years it's it's of course part and parcel of that but to think of it explicitly in terms of reconciliation uh is certainly something um yeah if i had to be honest i've only been doing it since especially since the trc report came out um, was following the commission and its work and uh, up to that point, of course. But um, again, saying, terming or framing things in terms of gifts is just such an enormous gift um, uh, that the commissioners and the survivors and uh, the intergenerational survivors have, have given uh, to Canada. And the documents that have come out so far are astonishing and what people are are now able to find online through the National Center uh, for Truth and Reconciliation at the U of M. The database that was just launched a couple weeks ago Mm -hmm. is just extraordinary. Um, I think I think one of the reasons it's a difficult question to answer because reconciliation probably means something different to every single Indigenous person in this country. I would imagine. Um, People's experiences of settler colonial oppression and what their families went through there are certain common things certainly the displacement from the land being the main one um but they all had i they would have i would imagine anyway you know people would have different experiences specifically of it right and the ways in which things were stripped from them and the extent to which things were stripped from them um and how those things took place specifically. You know, everyone, you know, chooses to, um, not that it's about forgiveness, but like, you know, when, I'll remove it from the situation, but when somebody has been harmed generally, I'm just uh, taking, abstracting it right out, right? You know, people, people come to, um, everybody needs a different thing in order to have that harm repaired. You know, it takes something different for each person, right? So I imagine that that's the case with Indigenous peoples across the country. I think in a general sense, um, 
you know, what needs to happen is for the great mass of non-Indigenous Canadians to become aware of the histories, and not just of residential schools, but of all the things that are tied into that and support that, supported that uh, effort, um, and all the things that flowed from it. So people need to know the truth of how treaties were signed. People need to know about the land displacement. People need to know about the deliberate policies of starvation in the West. Um, <clears throat> and people need to know about how these things link up to what's going on with CFS now and what's going on with missing and murdered women. And, and I think that's another one of the great strengths of that commission is that they did their very best, and I think, I think they pulled it off, um, to connect all of these things and saying, yes, we're running this commission on the Indian residential school experience. Um, but it is about all of these things, right? And, um, I mean, there's some very practical direction. There's 94 recommendations in there. I mean, and, and some of them are, are geared to, say, levels of government and certain professions and nurses and teachers, journalists are mentioned specifically. Um, that maybe not all Canadians, non-Indigenous Canadians, fall into one of those categories, right? Um, but but you can take the spirit of what is said through all of that and say, well, you know, well, what does this, what is at the root of that recommendation? And I think at the root of the vast majority, if not all of them, is like people need to start learning the truth and then acting on that truth and and changing something. So like there's very specific, one of the, I think it might be the last recommendation or the second last about changing the oath that new Canadians have to take, you know, um, to include, uh, I believe it's to include respect for treaties. But like that, that's an enormous action, right? And it's, uh, it's both symbolic, but I think, you know, if adopted will have effects on people, the way people think when they first arrive in this country. Um, so I think that there's some, some fairly big clues to be taken from the 94 recommendations. Um, but I think, you know, um, people, individual people tend to get overwhelmed about, well, how, well, how am I supposed to participate in reconciling uh, a country's relationship with this population, right? And one of the ways I'm thinking about it right now in talking to people is saying well okay don't if reconciling Canada is too big of a thing <laughs> for you to right just what can you do to reconcile relationships with people in your community or your community's relationship um, with with the indigenous peoples that, that you're sharing the land with or that are sharing the land with you and then that just comes back to good you know, truth learner action work, right? Yeah. That we talked about before. And um, that's, you know, learn the histories, you know, go meet people, ask what they want, right? And, um, you know, those recommendations um, that the, the commissioners came up with, you know, they didn't, they didn't make them up themselves. They didn't go into a room and Okay, well, what should we recommend? Those those bubbled up and are also grounded in and um, flowed from what they heard from survivors and intergenerational survivors. So that was even 
you know, an indigenous body that commission those commissioners asking the greater indigenous community in Canada that was affected by these things. Well, what do you want? What do you need? Like that's a huge part. I think of what that commission was about saying, tell us your story because there has to be a record of these things. Right. Um, but then what do you need? What do you need? Right. And that same practice is, that's like one of the best sort of quote unquote ally practices to say, what do you need? I don't know what you need because I'm not you. What do you need? Right. And then go about supporting them to get it, you know, in the ways that they're requesting. Um, And so I think reconciliation, because they're talking about reconciling Canada and Canadian society, like, right. So that means it happens in, or it can happen in all aspects of Canadian society. It's not like just the job of the schools, just the job of the police forces, just the job of the justice community, of journalists, of the health care system. It's the job of all of those systems and all of the people and even more than those systems, right? Um, it's about everyone saying, reaching out, learning histories and, and saying, well, what, what do you need, right? And that's why those recommended, that's why there's 94. I bet you they had more than that and had to pare it down. I'd mm-hmm. love to find out. Um, but that's why they cover such a huge range of things. I remember some of the mainstream commentary in the media was, oh, well, uh, some of the less kind commentary was like, you know, well, this was a commission about residential schools. We got recommendations in here for journalists. We got recommendations in here for, you know, like huge, like a wide ranging communities and and sort of targets for recommendations and these are people that just totally miss the point right it's like um because they did take a a wide view of of what these schools represented and what these schools caused um and you can't reconcile what happened in those schools by simply implementing by only implementing say new education curriculum which is incredibly important but it's just one piece of it you know um, what happened in those schools and what happened before those schools and what happened after those schools affect Indigenous people's experience in this country in all aspects, right, of this country and its system. So there needed to be recommendations for all of it. Um, and so I guess that's sort of the good news for non-Indigenous people. It's like the whole thing is wounded or broken. So you can pick any piece of it and start going to work and you're going to be working on it you know yeah. uh you don't have to uh you don't have to be a teacher or a nurse or uh somebody who supports new immigrants or you can just be you you know um and but you need to be doing these things because if you aren't then you're you're part of that block that's not reconciling anything okay well i I think we'll have to end there sure. sadly <laughs> no, that's um yeah unless i unless there's anything else you wanted to add or i don't think so i think no. uh just and you can you can put this in but uh but the uh first nations education research center should be complimented and applauded for its work and um 
And it's one of those organizations that more non-Indigenous people should know about. There may not be anything that they can do to support necessarily or immediately, but just be aware that uh, it's here and the work that it's doing. And um, in my uh, professional life, I work as a librarian, and uh, and there are many, many books that are produced out of this uh, out of this facility that are for sale and um, and uh, resources online that can be engaged with. And it's just one of those things that unless people make efforts or have been given the opportunity to know about, they might not know about. So um, I'd just like to thank you guys for your work. Oh, thank you. And that's all for this edition of Thunder Radio. Thank you so much to Monique for joining us and thank you for tuning in. I hope you'll join us for our next episode and bye for now.